Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I'm Philippe Cousteau from Earth Echo International, and you're listening to Out of the Blue, 855 AM, 3CR's Marine and Ocean News Program. Welcome to 3CR Out of the Blue. It's uh, Sunday the 23rd at 11.30am and um, I just want to acknowledge um, the traditional owners of the land 3CR is broadcasting from and pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Acknowledge this land was never ceded. You are with Matt Testoni and Fum and we are going to talk about uh, a bit of Dan Andrews's uh, new fishing regulations and a pretty exciting encounter with a bronze whaler in Port Phillip Bay. radio station encouraging independent music and independent thought they've been supporting musicians for more than 30 years so let's support them hi and welcome to out of the blue um so i'm sitting here with fun and we're going to talk about first up um, a bit of a bronze whaler encounter oh my god i so want to interview you since i heard this story (laughs) from you um so yeah matt um I saw this uh, very exciting Facebook post from you coming past on my feed this week. Uh, you were in quite a, a bind, I should say, probably, under Blair Gallery Pier with uh, some of your fellow uh, photographers. What happened? Well, we were out at about 11 p.m. at night, and um, we were just diving around, taking photos of sea slugs. So, of course, that means we all had macro lenses on. So before you ask, no photos of this um, event happened, but we were out. Did it really happen, though, if there's no photos? That's the claim. Sidebar, (laughs) sidebar. No, please continue. Um, Yeah, so we were out at about 11.30 and um, looking down into sea slugs and various things. It was a really great dive. There was octopus, there was cuttlefish, there was all these amazing animals. And we were swimming around. We'd been there for about 90 minutes underwater in three meters, about 50 meters from the shore. And I can't exactly remember what happened to me next. All I know is that something caused me to look up. 
whether it was a nudge or water movement or something, I was like, oh, I must have bumped into a pylon or my dive buddy. And I look up and I see about 10 centimeters from my face, the midsection of a humongous shark, which... Oh, my God. <laughs> right on the Blair Gowrie Pier. Right under Blair Gowrie Pier. Um, it had its fins down. It was kind of hunched. And the way it had moved and the way my friend who was actually watching me when it came in described it was it darted in really close to me. And like, you know, it, it may have nudged me. It may not. As I said, I can't remember. I just remember taking a few seconds to um, actually comprehend it. I was like, oh, what's that? Oh, what? Oh. And that was followed by a few moments of panic. The first of which I was like, all right, the plan has always been find the reef, you know, hide on the floor. So I dived, I was already on the bottom and I was like, "Uh oh, so I start like swimming around being like, oh, whoa, I better find a pylon because the pylons at Blair Gallery Pier are quite large. And you think I I could hide behind that or at least something. Yeah. But when you're faced with a shark of that size, they're not big pylons, they're tiny pylons and you cannot hide behind them. (laughs) No, and it... (laughs) It actually happens that the first pylon I found was about the size of my fist anyway. So oh, I was God. like, oh, no. So oh. did you, when you saw that shark, did you immediately know the species? Like, what size are we talking about here? I know everything looks 25% bigger underwater, but what size are we talking? I reckon it would have been about two and a half to three meters. Yeah. So, and I kind of base that off not only my encounter, but you can kind of see about two meters at night underwater with your torches. And the tail was next to my head and I couldn't see its head. It was that big. Yeah, yeah. And how did you, because you, you, you've you identified it since a, as a bronze whaler, um, which is not uncommon because they do tend to come into bays and sort of like shallow estuaries um, to hunt. Um, how did you identify that? Like what were the, the telltale signs for you? Well, I know that, I mean, there's sharks of all kinds around, but generally great white and bronze whaler are two or seven gill are the ones you can't probably going to bump into in the bay. And I saw there was quite brown and quite dark. So unlike a great white, which was a bit of a relief at the time, but it was still terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Um, and like, yeah, so, and that was the point where I saw the tail go past. I just panicked and then I grabbed my friend and stupidly, this is a lesson learned, I had been putting my dive gear together on the, you know, before the dive, and I was like, oh, I won't need my compass. Who needs a compass? Yeah, who needs a compass when you're diving under Blair Gary Pier? <laughs> Famous last words. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, like, I didn't, I was just like, I don't need a compass. I'll be okay. And when the shark went past, I was like, which way is shore? I have no idea. Luckily, my friend. Um, I, that I grabbed, I grabbed her really tight by the arm and just started swimming and she pointed me in the right direction. Luckily, she was smarter than me. And another friend of ours had actually, so her tale was that she'd been about 20 meters away. She'd been separated. You know, we often separate a little bit at night. You can still see each other's torches. And this shark had come and circled her twice, about about a meter away. And she, like, just breathed in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out so much that she'd floated to the surface. Yeah. But then gone right next to the pontoon and been quite kind of wedged and flat. So the shark probably then left her alone. Yeah, right. And um, and, and then, then he came back to you guys. Yeah, a couple of minutes later, she reckons, because she got back to the pier pylon and was kind of hugging it and panicking because she could see our lights and she could see the shark wasn't with her anymore. And she was like, oh, I have to go get them. This is going to be terrifying. And then luckily she saw us coming towards her and she started flashing her light. 
and that was our beacon. Can we just can we just acknowledge the bravery of this woman who's just been by herself with this massive shark circling her and then deciding to go back in to find her buddies. Now, that's pretty brave, I reckon. Yeah, so kudos, kudos to your buddy for uh, not yeah. just warning you with her light, but also you know making the move to to come and fetch you guys. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's so, pretty amazing. Yeah, we'll give a shout out to Naomi Strong for um, her bravery or her bravery it was about to happen. Um, Living up to her last name. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Well, she, so that is definitely someone you want to dive with. Um, and yeah, it was. It was amazing. Like the three of us kind of grabbed each other when we got to the surface, and we almost pulled each other in this big lump back to the shore. And it was, it was terrifying though. Was, yeah. yeah, yeah, I bet. And it's night diving is such an it's such an adventure, but it always kind of puts me on the edge of my seat, right? Because the world is literally only as big as your torch, right? Mm. Your torchlight. Like yeah. that's the only reference you have to orient yourself, to see anything. Um, to keep track of your buddies. So it's it's a really um, amazing experience to do night dives because the reefs look completely different with completely different animals than you would see during the daytime. So it's yeah. very rewarding. But it can also be, you know, quite – it really pushes the boundaries, I think, of, yeah. you know, what we what we feel is like what is safe, yeah. <laughs> I find. Oh, and I, you're probably the same, but I've, I always get to a period in a night dive where I bump my foot against something. I'm like, oh, it's a shark. Yeah. And this time it <laughs> Something touched me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this time it was, it was a bronze whaler shark. Yeah. So that's an amazing encounter. And it's really interesting also that you, um, you, you saw its behavior because you said it was, it was bumping you or possibly, and, and you're talking about the, um, the way that the, the pectoral fins were, were pointed. So, so what's, what's that about? What's that? Yeah, so sharks kind of have two modes. They have the peaceful cruising mode. And I've dived with a lot of sharks, so it was actually able to kind of um, be aware of this. But when they're kind of hunched up, they kind of have a little bend in their back and their fins are really down. That means they're aggressive. So that's like, so their pectoral fins are instead of like, uh, out like duck feet in a horizontal plane, they would go vertical and pointing down towards the bottom. Is, yeah. is that what you mean? Okay, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah, and that so that's kind of like a, a threatening or possibly I'm going to take a bite out of you posture. Yeah. It's like a kind of like a hunting pose. Yeah. Okay. Right. If, if a shark's going to attack something, be it for territory or be it for food, it's going to have its fins down. Yeah. It's. It, I mean, to be a bit nerdy, it kind of is like Star Wars. Have you ever seen Star Wars when they open their wings? Uh, I am quite a big nerd, but Star Wars is kind of like out of my nerd zone a little bit. Sorry, (laughs) but I believe you. (laughs) Well, um, yeah, so they, yeah, they have their fins down and they're quite like um, aggressive and it was just the movement of it. So the fact that I saw it kind of like just at the edge of my eye when it came out, like it had gone to bump me or move right into me. And that's usually the last pass it does before it comes in for a bit of a nibble or a bit of a... See it more serious. So, so that bumping is that is that kind of like testing what you are and to see if if you you might be aggressive towards it before it tries to take a bite. Or? Yeah, exactly. And so that's similar to the story you would have heard of Mick Fanning mm-hmm. when um, that shark came up to him and everyone's like, oh, he punched it. So that's actually not I'm saying go punch a shark, but often like if a shark comes in, it's quite aggressive. If you nudge it back or you push it back, yeah, I have. Uh, 
personally punched a shark in the face once, but that's that's a story. What? That's a story for another time. Maybe I can tell that on my uh, my last uh, out of the blue <laughs> show that's definitely. coming up soon. But um, yeah, okay. So yeah, and that definitely re- I remember that really repelled that shark. Yeah, once I punched it, you know, between the eyes, it was like, oh yeah, maybe I won't bump you. Um, so so what happened then? Like, because you guys, you know, made sure that you got out of there real quick did you see it like did it keep following you or what was it doing did you see anything it was dark obviously it was dark and we'd come to the surface and it was an amazing feeling because underwater you are quite panicked but even though you're on the surface little legs dangling for the shark to nibble (laughs) because you can talk to each other you're actually like you actually calm down a little bit and um yeah we're able we didn't we didn't look down we didn't look back we just swam as hard as we could between the pylons, um, right next to the where the wooden palisade is. Yeah. So it couldn't kind of circle us. And um, funnily enough, one of us, as we were getting out onto the pontoon, we dropped a dive torch, only in like a meter and a half of water, but no one went. To, <laughs> no one went in to get it. We were yeah, like, it's, it's, like, it's leaving it there. Yeah, that's a sensible idea. So, uh, what did you what did you learn from that encounter? Because that's quite. I mean, that's a lot of people's worst nightmare, you know, including a lot of divers' worst nightmares. But what did you learn now you're, you know, you're all safe and sound? Um, what did you learn from that encounter? Probably learned, one, take a compass all the time. <laughs> uh, two, dive with your buddies and stay close. Like, and it's a thing that photographers always do. We always kind of separate. Or, oh, yeah, I don't want to take a photo of that boring slug. I want this slug. But, um, yeah, ultimately, stay close to your buddies and um, plan and exit together, I would say. Exit together because um, often, like, during the day, sometimes with another photographer, I've gotten out 20 minutes before and you're kind of waiting for them. You're like, oh, they'll be fine. But, um, yeah, that would be the worst thing if, like, something happened to them while you're out waiting and you couldn't help them. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what a tale and what an adventure, Matt. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us. Uh, you are on 855 on Out of the Blue, 855 AM, 3CR Community Radio. Uh, this is Out of the Blue, and we're going to a song, and we will be right back.
Welcome back to 3CR, 850 AM, with Out of the Blue, with Matt and Thumb. Um, find us streaming on the 3CR website, on digital radio, on podcast, and normal radio. Um, and that song you just heard was Cold Weather by a Well Rumpy Band. Pretty cool track. Um, so earlier this month, we had um, Dan Andrews announce that there were going to be 24 new commercial fishing licenses for people to go out and get local live uh, fit local fish local seafood but the key to that is that it's going to be on hook and line only so uh has been doing a little bit of uh, research about this so you want to give us a bit of a go ahead yeah i talked about it um uh, two shows ago um when we had um one of the organizers in from uh from the apollo bay seafood festival um so that's when it was, uh, you know, hot news. And it's it's actually quite an exciting development, I think. But it's it's come under a little bit of uh, um, criticism, I guess, from, from some of, you know, some people in the environmental field who uh, 
who are saying, for example, that, you know, the fish stocks are already being depleted. It's already under strain. Uh, why, sh you know, should there be more commercial fishing being stimulated, really? Um, but I thought about this and it's actually, I think it's actually a good thing. I know that's not a very popular standpoint maybe to take, you know, as an environmentalist and marine biologist myself. But um, yeah, it, 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 it's good to kind of see the um, relationship that it has with commercial fishing and also everything around it. So just to put it in context, uh, the 24 permits that will be issued will only be for local fishermen, so small-scale small family businesses um, along the coast of Victoria. And the uh, the catch that they are allowed to catch altogether is not going to be uh, more than 50 tons of seafood a year. And if you put that in perspective, the equivalent of that, it's, it is actually the equivalent of only five days fishing for Victoria's actual commercial operators. So those are the larger operators that have commercial licenses that fish with nets um, that have a larger reach as well to where they can go and they sell their fish on markets and to restaurants in Melbourne and across Victoria whereas these licenses are for local seafood so um, they can only be sold to local restaurants for example in Apollo Bay uh, and you know all along the coast there and also in East Gippsland. So the fish kind of stays local in the local community and um, that will bring a lot of uh, benefits to the communities as well. Um, not only in the form of, you know, having access to local fresh caught fish, uh, but also in the form of uh, revenue from tourists that will travel to those places to enjoy that locally caught fish because the demand is still quite high uh, for locally caught fish. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the context. And uh, you mentioned uh, that it was going to be with uh, hook and line? Yeah, so hook and line is uh, one of the ways that, I guess the most famous hook and line is with tuna. So typically if you find a like, sustainable, eco-friendly tuna, it's going to be with hook and line. And um, that's good because you're not trawling, you're not getting any bycatch. You're usually targeting the species as a good fisherman, especially if it's your business you want to be doing. You're going to be getting a certain species and you're not going to be having throwing away a different catch. Uh, you're not going to be killing innocent turtles and dolphins or seabirds. Um, it's a lot more sustainable. Yeah, indeed. And um, and I, I think it's, especially, for example, now in East Gippsland, you know, where the fires have been raging, um, to have that kind of boost to the local economy is really quite important for, you know, post-bushfire relief and um, getting those economies back on again. And... Um, in Victoria, we also have quite a strictly regulated fisheries, right? And um, the numbers of the fish stocks are, you know, calculated every year. The licenses are being adapted to that. Now, w whether that actually is as sustainable as the government makes it out to be, you know, sure. I mean, people weigh sustainability with, you know, <laughs> with different in yeah. different ways, I guess. Um, but um, yeah, what's your uh, what's your what's your take on the sustainability of it, Matt? Well, I mean, me personally, I don't eat any seafood, and that's just because I believe like it's there's too much taken. But I think that people enjoy seafood, and I'm not going to tell anyone don't eat seafood. And I mean, ultimately, what we want to do is we want to all be able to enjoy the things we like to do. 
I want to be able to see fish and bronze whalers while scuba diving. <laughs> and, like, you know, my other friends may want to eat fish and different things, you know, and different seafood. And so if we can do those two things together and we can do it locally and we can support local economies, I think it's, I think it's kind of a win-win and it's, it's a policy that I feel is really backed by a bit of science. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, I mean, the, 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 the uh, fisheries departments of Victoria, they have worked for – it must be uh, over 10 years at least to make fisheries in Victoria sustainable. And then the Andrew government, you know, they started withdrawing the commercial fishing licenses from Port Phillip Bay um, when they when they were elected and replacing it with the One Million Anglers project to get recreational fishes on the bay. Um, but I also – but the problem with that is that the demand of fresh fish in the restaurants in Melbourne and on the markets has never gone down. You know, if anything, it's only – you know, yeah. going up. So it. I always felt like it kind of stimulated a black market. Yeah, you know? definitely. I think there is definitely a black market for fish out there. Oh, definitely. If you look at the Instagram of uh, Fisheries Victoria, I don't know if you follow them on Instagram, um, you know, they're always posting when they're catching poachers with like, you know, a hundred undersized snapper, for example. Yeah. Um, and, you know, those obviously are being sold, you know, backdoor to, to restaurants. So I think if you can have local communities really – um, really owning their own patch of coastline and ocean, it's not just empowering. It doesn't only bring in the tourists, but it also stimulates that sense of stewardship that people have yeah. who live in these communities because they have grown up there and they they respect and love the places where they live, you know. And and so stimulating that um, that that type of fishing where it can be sold locally. Uh, through family businesses, um, I think that can only be a good thing, honestly. Yeah, and I think that's a really, like, really good point that um, it provides stewardship for that local kind of fishing patch. Yeah, because if, if you look overseas, um, for example, uh, in um, several South Asian countries, um, there have been, over the last two decades or so, there have been many um, projects where local communities um, get you know, are empowered and trained to really look after their own uh, coral reefs, for example. And it has been proven, you know, by scientific research that the when local people look after their own reefs and have a say in how they manage that, it is actually great for biodiversity, right? Yeah. Because nobody wants to deplete their own backyard. So the, 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 the stewardship that comes with that is, I think, is, is a real priceless thing. And, you know, given that those licenses are only going to take five days worth of what a commercial fishery is. Yeah. It's like a blip on the radar. It is. It is really a blip on the radar. Yeah. So yeah. looking forward to going to Apollo Bay and uh, possibly eating some fish. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can. I'll, I'll stay. <laughs> and um, we'll be back after this. Hi, it's Paul Kelly here. Hi, this is Shane Howard here, asking you to support 3CR. Independent radio station, encouraging independent music and independent thought. They've been supporting musicians for more than 30 years, so let's support them. And thank you for listening to Out of the Blue today on 3CR, 855 AM. Um, find us on www.3cr.org.au slash radioblue or on Facebook, um, at Out of the Blue Radio. Uh, up next, we have Sally with Out of the Pan.